guys, Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of your hosts, and I'm here as always with my friend, my co-host, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How's it going, G? It is going very well, very well. I am so pumped for this episode that we're recording in a couple of minutes, so can't wait to get started. How are things with you? They are going similarly well. I'm uh, really, really excited for our guest today. I'm excited to talk about this. This episode, I'm going to say more about this in a moment, but this episode inspired by a conversation I had after class one day uh, just recently. And a student came up, asked a question. I thought, gosh, that's a great question. Let's talk about it. Went upstairs, asked you, hey, can we have Brian Carr on? I just told everybody who our guest is. Uh, (laughs) You fool! (laughs) Can we have Brian Carr on? To, uh, to talk through uh, this question, and you said, absolutely not. I would mm-hmm. rather die. Mm-hmm. Uh, than, <laughs> this, than is, this is verbatim. Yeah. I, I actually said, said worse, again. but yeah. uh, you're cleaning it up what? for the show. Yeah. So, no, that is what happened. And so, uh, actually, no, you said right on, let's do it. Um, and uh, I did not so, say that. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I think we should get to it since I've already introduced him, but I'm going to introduce him better now because he deserves a better introduction than me accidentally just saying his name when I didn't intend to. Are you ready? Yes. Awesome. He is an associate professor in the communication department here at UW-Green Bay. He has a PhD in media arts from the University of Oklahoma, and he's the author of two recent books, Gender Defenders, Marvel's Heroines in Transmedia Spaces, which he co-wrote with Meta Karstarfin, and Transmedia Construction of Black Panther, Long Live the King. He is also the host of the Serious Fun Podcast. It's Dr. Brian Carr. How's it going, Brian? I am confused and tired. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. And ready to go. We should tell the world. I feel like it's important to let the world know. I have a question I'm going to ask before we get to the episode, uh, which I mean, we're in the episode. Before we get to the real questions, I've got a question for you that I want you to tackle. But first, I want to tell the world we are recording this on November 7th, which is the day before Election Day here in the United States. I, I suspect that some anxiety and stress about the state of the world is kind of informing our uh, our our take on this, that there might be some silliness. Um, we may be feeling very differently when this episode comes out on November 23rd, right? Which is the day before Thanksgiving. Does that seem fair? Yes. I, I'm not thinking that far ahead yet, but yes. Okay, okay good. <laughs> good. Good. Excellent. Well, here's my first question. And it's actually unrelated to why we're having uh, you on today, but it is, what does transmedia mean? Sure. So transmedia, um, the short version is something that we're all kind of aware of is that stories and franchises exist across multiple forms of media now. Classic example of transmedia is something like Star Wars. I know, Georgina, you're a big fan. um, And you probably are aware there are not only Star Wars movies, there are also books and comics and now TV shows and video games and Christmas albums and all kinds of different stuff. (laughs) And the way that that franchise is traditionally operated is that every part of these, this franchise tells a part of the larger story. So if you're like, oh, hey, how did they get the plans for the Death Star anyway? Well, there's a whole other movie that explains that. Or, oh, hey, what was this character doing? Like, what was Jango fed up to before he shows up on Camino? There's a whole video game that explains that and so on and so forth. Um, so 
this idea that you tell one story across multiple channels of uh, of media, Henry Jenkins and others have talked about this as essentially the new way that we tell stories in this sort of consolidated, uh, fragmented, simultaneous media landscape. Um, what I make the argument in 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 uh, the book and our authors and contributors, because I want to point out, Gender Defenders is a edited volume full right. of contributors from all over the country who've done incredible work. Um, is make the argument to think about the superhero as a transmedia character in that we you know we tell the story of Black Panther like each story of Black Panther is different in discrete media but the larger sort of cultural notion of the Black Panther is the sum total of a lot of different creative angles stories etc and each one of them feeds into and shapes the others and so transmedia becomes not just one story told in many different channels but many different stories coming together to tell one sort of cohesive whole and so something i talk about in the book you know when we talk about what the comics added to these characters uh it's one thing but the films have also added a lot of things back to black panther things like the wakanda forever salute that comes from the film first it's now built into the comics okay. um the the vibranium suit that absorbs energy and redirects it that is i that, that comes from the film first and then it's brought into the comics and so on and so forth but the comics also shape the films and you get the idea right gotcha. and this is something that these companies are really borrowing from with this whole kinds of concept of the multiverse now where we're trying to take all these things and have them coexist equally um, as separate parts of a greater whole. Excellent. Thank you for that. I ask because that word is in both of the, uh, the titles of your books. I, um, I, I actually had never heard that word before you, I heard you use it. And I think somebody else asked you either on Facebook or on Twitter uh if what it meant and you told them so i actually knew that was for our listeners but i sure <laughs> it was the first time i had ever ever heard uh yeah. that like, that term was from you now i know what it means but why don't you tell me what yes. you think it means right that... <laughs> yes asking for a listener no it's and that was the same approach i used when i was learning swear words as a child right my siblings <laughs> would say ryan don't use that word you don't even know what it means and i would say yeah i do you don't you know uh <laughs> Why did you tell me what you think it means, Gene? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right. So some background on this episode. I I had, I mentioned this before. I was in class. I was talking about, it was, uh, we were talking about anger disorders or the lack thereof in the DSM. And a student asked about the Hulk and uh, whether or not what I thought about that. And it got us talking about She-Hulk. And afterward, the student came up and just said, you know, what do you think? Um, superhero movies kind of teach us about the emotions and, 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 and how people can experience them when they're healthy, when they're not, how to express them, things like that. And since Brian, I've, we've had you on the show a few times, we've even done some crossover episodes. Mm-hmm. I think the first time you were ever on was for an episode where we, I think it was superheroes on the sofa or something like that. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to do that one at the Brown County library, shout out to the Brown County library. Truth. <laughs> which is always fun. I love what yep. PopCon is that what it's called? Yep, it's PopCon now. Yeah, so we just did three whole shows on serious fun, right? Uh from the PopCon this yes. year, so go check that out. Check that out. So um anyways, I, I want to guess start there and maybe we start with Hulk and She-Hulk and mm-hmm. what we can learn uh about emotions but particularly anger from those yeah. shows. So it's interesting that you bring these two characters up first because fundamentally they are dealing with the same kind of tableau, but in different ways. 
Um, you have the Hulk created originally uh, as a response to kind of the fascination and anxiety that we had as a country and a culture with nuclear weapons. Um, he is created through a gamma ray bomb explosion that somehow doesn't kill him and turns him into a giant green rage monster. This is also an excuse <laughs> for um, Stanley and his co-creators to work with uh, concepts like the Dr. And Je- Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of dynamic. What has been interesting is how much in recent years that has been sort of reframed and refocused in the comics and other media to be sort of like have the Hulk, not just as a sort of unfortunate side effect of that, but rather kind of the manifestation of a lot of Bruce Banner's sort of internal frustrations with his father, with different aspects of his life, that kind of thing, you know, depending on the continuity, his father was very abusive to him. Um, He grew up having to kind of conceal a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, And the Hulk lets him out, but it's also this kind of idea of what happens when this destructive, very masculine anger that has not been regulated or really effectively taken care of is unleashed upon an unsuspecting world. And, you know, history tells us not it's nothing good. Um, the Hulk became becomes kind of this very sort of straightforward metaphor in that way. Um, and, you know, if you think about the superhero, the superhero fundamentally is uh, a character that often identifies and operates on a very sort of simplistic emotional level. You know, you have Batman. I am vengeance. Right. Um, <laughs> you have other characters who just like trying to personify a particular emotion. And the Hulk is anger. Um, and, you know, if you're a kid, that's, you know, you, you're dealing with your own. You're trying to figure that stuff out. I don't have to tell you. I mean, you've written, you know, a thing or two about being mad. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a thing that's tough to deal with, right? It's a very sort of primal emotion and the Hulk kind of represents something that a lot of readers probably can empathize with and really understand. Um, and it's not surprising. The Hulk is one of Marvel's most popular characters. And in fact, was one of the most popular characters back when the, um, Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby show was on. Um, that was also, you know, part of what got us to this current cultural moment. Right. Um, so it's been interesting to see, and, and then later iterations will, of course, have him kind of finding a balance with the Hulk, um, you know, being kind of having the Hulk body, but more of a Bruce Banner intellect, that kind of thing. That's kind of where we're at right now with the character in the current Marvel films is that he's found a balance and like literal like harmony, you know, through meditation and training and that kind of thing to be Hulk, but be Bruce Banner at the same time. But She-Hulk is interesting because She-Hulk, um, you know, is... Largely, many of you've probably seen the Marvel, you know, the Disney Plus show. Uh, she comes at it from a different perspective. If we took that anger and made it feminine instead of masculine, what would happen? And it turns out that they got a lot of mileage out of a couple key dynamics. Number one is the fact that depending on the iteration, Jen uh, Walters, who's Bruce Banner's cousin, um, she gets a blood transfusion from him in the comics. It's an accidental thing in the in the show. Um, she either, depending on the era resents She-Hulk being more confident, attractive, et cetera, than she is. Um, Or she embraces it and saying, like, I don't want to go back and be regular me. She-Hulk is more fun. I'm more myself. Um, But what the show does in a really kind of interesting way is it does both of those things. And it shows, and of course, dudes on the internet were mad about this, as the show predicted they would be. She's able to become a better Hulk almost right away because she can control her anger and turn it on and off in a way Bruce can't because, as she points out, I'm a woman. It's just part of what you do, right? I have to do this all the time. 
So she's able to have a lot more control over that and have that kind of harmony that it took him years to accomplish. Um, that to me is a really interesting dynamic. Uh, and it got criticized, I, I think, from some people saying, well, this is really simplistic or really obvious or really pandering. But I think, you know, um, not being a woman myself, but certainly, you know, being empathetic and sympathetic and, you know, being listening, um, I think that's a lot of th a thing a lot of women can relate to. I was so, I've always been so impressed by the, the thought that the Hulk never became like an anti-hero because as, as our anger professor quite knows, a lot of times anger gets such a bad rap as like mm -hmm. the evil emotion or like the, the bad emotion that I was really surprised that the Hulk is considered like a, a superhero. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about that in the context of Black Adam and like the that that character um, and you know calling that character an anti-hero, maybe because of this a similar anger mm -hmm. issue. Um I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, like, you know, the Hulk cat is traditionally a heroic figure, but there have been stories where he is a problem. Um, you know, Tony Stark has a suit of armor specifically designed to stop the Hulk if he needs it. Um, there is a storyline called World War Hulk um, or Planet Hulk. So it's Planet Hulk is the first one where Tony Stark, Reed Richards and Dr. Strange and Professor X, the Illuminati is what they call themselves because they're all self-important jerks. Um, they decide that they rather than deal with the Hulk and, and, and try to like help Bruce Banner, like what if we just shot you off into space so you weren't our problem anymore? So he shoots off into space. He, get, he crash lands on this planet, Sakaar. He becomes like this like gladiator hero figure and basically like you know leads the pop the public and then um the planet's destroyed basically through accidentally through the actions of the illuminati um and he comes back to earth and declares war on earth uh with his warbound his family of gladiators he brought back with him in world war hulk and that becomes everybody's problem so it's it, it depends on the era and the story but it is interesting you're right in that traditionally he is an unquestioned good um, you know, he's, he's, uh, but also kind of like, it shows, I think the idea of using anger, um, as a tool in that a lot of times the Avengers solution is simply to get him mad and then point him at the thing that needs breaking. Right. And I, I think that sometimes, you know, we see anger as this destructive thing, but also, you know, in these stories, we also see like, well, what if we could just put it away? Right. What if we could just hide it? We don't have to worry about it. We can seal, don't feel to steal from a different movie um <laughs> we also or or what if we decide to just use it and be like all right i'm gonna be the angry guy that gets stuff done because you need to be mad right if you're not mad you're not paying attention we see this in our politics right it's the the sort of use of anger to achieve a tool except instead of the hulk breaking you know an ultron drone or something like that it's the body politic breaking our traditions and our institutions and storming our capitals. And this is probably getting too political for what we're going for here, but you get my point. I, I do. And I, I want to say to all the, the, the dudes pushing back or toxic bros pushing back on the, uh, on the She-Hulk stuff, there's tons and tons and tons of data to, to back everything you said, right? That, that the expectations mm -hmm. of women when it comes to anger are very, very different. Uh, and the, so in addition to listening and being empathetic, we also have mm -hmm. quite a bit of research back there to, to support this. And to me, that's what made She-Hulk a really interesting show is that they, that in so many ways, they, they flipped the, mm -hmm. 
a lot of those ideas that that for me always actually, and we've talked about this before in a previous episode, that actually made the Hulk a little bit boring at times because of what you just said, like make him mad, point him at the thing. Yeah. And you know, that this was this was actually a way of thinking about anger and that was more interesting to me about needing to control it in a different way. And that actually being a skill that someone had developed over a lifetime because they had no choice um, was, was intriguing. I, I want to talk about some others as well, though. And I had sent you, Brian, some, some, uh, some suggestions earlier for sure. people I might bring up. And I, I don't have them email in front of me, but I'll, we'll wing it. That's all right. Can we, t- <laughs> can we talk a little bit about Bucky yeah. and, uh, and Bucky's guilt? Because that really seemed to drive things in a way that I thought was really interesting, mm-hmm. um, especially considering, you know, I think we have good reason to believe, at least in the movies that, that or in the, in the TV show, that Bucky wasn't really responsible for a lot of the choices that were made. No. Yet he's um, still feeling guilty for them. Yeah. So this is interesting. I, I want to first off say, and this is something that apparently, because uh, I teach a first year seminar course uh, here at our prestigious institution of higher learning about superheroes. And uh, one of the students asked about Bucky and I said he was a kid at first. He was Robin to Captain America's Batman. He wasn't like his same age. He was like, for some reason, the U.S. government decided sending a child into a war zone was a great idea in World War II. It was comics. Don't worry about it. Um, But, you know, the idea was that when Bucky died, he didn't come back. Right. That was like one of the characters. There's like a few characters they wouldn't bring back. You know, Uncle Ben doesn't come back, you know, because that would undermine Spider-Man, except in alternate universes, he becomes Spider-Man. Um, Gwen Stacy doesn't come back because that also undermines one of Spider-Man's key dramatic moments, except she does come back in a different universe. Um, Bucky's the one that actually did come back in the main universe. And um, I, I guess I should say Gwen's come back in the main universe, but I'm, I've stopped following the Spider-Man comics because nothing good happens anymore. Um, but uh, so Bucky dies and then he's brought back in Ed Brubaker. Uh, and I forget the artist, so I apologized um, in advance. Um, but he creates a storyline called the winter soldier when he takes over captain America and it pauses. Well, what if Bucky didn't die? He was captured and he was turned into an assassin, um, for various anti-American factions, everything from the Axis to Hydra to the Russians and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think he starts off as a Russian assassin primarily. Uh, it's, it's been a while since I read it, but in the movies, it's just like, okay, well, he falls off a train, Hydra finds him, they brainwash him, turn him into an assassin called the winter soldier. Um, and what those movies do is that they're really good about delving into his history and asking a fundamental question. You know, he pulled the trigger. He did all these things. He kills Iron Man's parents, which I'm just going to say this. Um, you know, I'm not going to take sides on this whole thing, but I feel like Captain America had a bare minimum responsibility as soon as he found out that Iron Man's de- parents were killed by his dead friend to like call up Tony Stark and be like, OK, I know we're not getting along right now, but just so you hear it from me <laughs> and not from anywhere else. Yep. You know, this is another thing. Guys just need to learn how to talk to each other. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. Um, agreed. Also, Tony Stark is right. But anyway, uh, in that instance, he's wrong in everything else. But yes, there is something to be said for, you know, okay, if you can have the ability to like reshape reality around you or, you know, have like an incredibly powerful suit of armor that can carry more weapons than anything else on Earth. Yeah, maybe you should answer to somebody other than yourself. Maybe there's something to that. Anyway, um, let's... He's so wrong and everything else. Everything, every bad thing in that in that franchise happens because of him. But that's a longer conversation. Anyway, so Bucky um, is essentially this question about guilt, right? Um, does he bear responsibility for what he did? And do your does a lack of agency excuse you? 
And I think for him, it doesn't, right? He absolutely says like, you know, it may not have been me making these decisions, but it was absolutely my hand that did this. Um, and this is something that he has to deal with. And we see him in the Falcon and Winter Soldier series. Like he does one of the things that a lot of like, you know, re research suggests you do. Like, you know, if you have wronged someone, you reach out, you try to make amends. And he has a list of people he's trying to reach out to. Um, and, you know, he spends time in Wakanda and they basically deprogram him. Sure, he fixes him. Um, you know, uh, he sits with the Dora Milaje and they kind of like work with him to help him overcome the vestiges of the, of the brainwashing and that kind of thing, which I think is, you know, that series is a mess in a lot of ways, but I like that whole arc was really good. Um, to me, I think he's interesting because he's a metaphor for the kind of guilt we have over things we've all done, right? We've all done things and said things like, you know, maybe it was youth, maybe it was, uh, a moment of anger. Maybe it was just we thought it was funny, but we've all done things that, you know, have repercussions or actions have consequences and how we deal with them and how we grow is a pretty fundamental part of being a human being. Um, and it was just I think it was well done to use this character to explore that very human concept. Uh, so Bucky is interesting because he is a character who really had a life taken away from him who's trying to rebuild it. And I think that you see that a lot in people who are trying to recover from trauma, abuse, et cetera, which he was abused. Like, there's no question about it. You know, um, his sense of reality was shattered. His body was not his own. He was being exploited by somebody else. Um, I think there's a really powerful metaphor in there for victims of abuse, for victims of trauma um, to not only, you know, forgive others if you feel you must, but also to let yourself have that same grace. I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but that's no. what just comes to mind when you talk about Bucky. That's really fascinating. And even what you said about uh, him, um, you know, us, we've all made mistakes. Maybe it was youth, maybe whatever. I mean, I think a variation of that is just, you know, we've done things that we regret that we did because we didn't know any better at mm -hmm. the time. Right. And, yeah. and in a, in a way that's, he's an extreme version of that. Right. Mm -hmm. it, this, this idea that we didn't know any better and, or that he didn't know any better. It's like, yeah, in his case, he was brainwashed and he couldn't actually stop himself. But in, you know, how different is that from someone doing something where it's just, look, I was, I was young and I was dumb and I didn't totally get it. And, yeah. um, you know, and so then it's about how do you simultaneously kind of make amends for that while also cutting yourself some slack? Mm -hmm. um and and trying to be better in the future that's fascinating i hadn't really thought about it in that way yeah and i probably hadn't thought about it either until you asked so <laughs> i have a question about the extremeness i don't know if that's a word of emotions that mm -hmm. superheroes have do yeah. you think that that's on purpose so that we can learn something from them or do you think it's to normalize extreme emotions like what are what do you think is the purpose of the, the extremeness of emotions in superheroes well i think to answer that question we have to step back and talk about the genre as what it is right um superheroes are an action adventure genre by definition that means that so problems are solved through violence physical movement destruction etc because that is what is exciting to read, exciting to see. Now, artists and authors have taken all kinds of different approaches with that. You know, there are some heroes who solve their problems not through violence, but through intellect, through uh, that sort of thing. One of my favorites, for instance, is Squirrel Girl, 
um, who defeats most of her villains, at least in the contemporary version of the character, not through brute force, though she is very strong, but by simply talking to them and trying to find common ground. She stops um, the Galactus, the world devouring entity from eating planet Earth by just taking to another planet where there's a bunch of acorns, like, hey, acorns are delicious, eat these. And so they just become friends and they bond over making fun of Thanos and stuff like that. Um, so it's, so there are ways to kind of do this differently, but superheroes, again, they start in this kind of very simple sort of pulp aspect where it's just like, you know, we have a limited number of pages. We have to convey very quickly who this character is. We have to set up the stakes of the story. We have to uh, like create an entire world sometimes in just a few pages, right? So there isn't a lot of time for subtlety. And, you know, so superheroes by definition are not terribly subtle characters because the genre and the way they're created kind of make it difficult for them to be that, right? And when we talk about film, I mean, you only have like a couple hours to set up who this character is. So Black Adam comes out. We got to explain who Black Adam is because most people don't know. Um, and we have to explain why he's angry and define him in this way so that he has some kind of arc. And then if there's going to be a sequel, which there probably will be, we can explore and delve more deeply into what makes him who he is, how he grows into it. In fact, it's something they did in the comics with Black Adam, where he went from being kind of like a one-off villain uh, and then just sort of recurring kind of antagonist who's just sort of like nefariously evil to actually making a more complex character who is beloved by his country, has a family, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, but still having that level of kind of cruelty that kind of comes out later. Um, so when we talk about the extreme sort of swing of emotions, superheroes are just their icons, right? They are meant to evoke a very simple thing very quickly. Um, Superman, you see Superman, he's got the S in his chest, hands on his hips, cape billowing in the breeze. You know what he stands for, like right away. Um, these characters are meant to evoke a specific reaction and symbolize a specific thing very quickly. So Captain America... He's literally draped in the flag. Patriotism, right? Um, you know, Spider-Man, he's a weird alien-looking creature. He looks almost like villainous, right? That's part of his appeal is that his costume makes him look like such an other that the fact that he is one of us under it is like a, like 90% of why he is the most popular superhero in the world. Um, there's all these kind of things where it's just like you got it's just like an advertising. You have 30 seconds to tell a story, right? What do you need to know about these people? What do they need to do to solve their problems and so on and so forth? And superheroes are the same way. Um, it's over the years, we've complicated that somewhat, but I don't think you can ever fully remove it from that background. So uh, I wonder to that end, just based on what that question and your answer there, to what degree do you think the focus on emotions at times is intentional from the authors versus just a thing that that happened? Well, I think, again, if we see character, these characters existing primarily as icons that are trying to represent or explain a larger thing, you know, obviously writers and authors are, and artists are going to explore, well, what can I use this character to represent? What does he, what does he or she mean to me? Um, and it's actually interesting that uh, there is in the DC universe, the Green Lantern Corps is, you know, they're space cops who have magic rings and they can, you know, whatever. But there's actually a whole emotional spectrum where each different light color represents different things. Yellow represents fear, green represents willpower, red represents anger. And anger is seen as this corrosive, destructive force. All the red lanterns are like constantly like vomiting up this like acidic red bile, including my favorite, Dextar, who's a little cat. And he flies around with in space, just throwing up and just like, um, but his backstory <laughs> is super tragic and sad. I don't want to get into it, but he's adorable. <laughs> 
Um, so, uh, but there's also like hope and, and like the star sapphires are like love and that kind of thing. And so there you see a concept where it's just like, you know, taking emotions to their broadest sense and saying, well, okay, you represent this. Therefore you have the power that represents this. And so there's an event called blackest night where each, like all the rings for each, uh, core go to different heroes. So like wonder woman, because she embodies love gets the love ring, um, you know, Scarecrow, the Batman villain, gets the fear ring. Um, Lex Luthor gets the orange one, which is greed, and so on and so forth. And it's a kind of way to say, okay, so we're, ba- we're again, further distilling these characters down to these very basic, simple emotions of what they represent. And so if we look at a character like Lex Luthor representing greed, avarice, um, you know, the idea that, it, you know, sort of this innate superiority that comes with being a billionaire who can buy whatever you want and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But you, you know, people don't love you the way that you want them to love you. I don't know why that seems relevant all of a sudden. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, that idea of the sort of fundamental human frailty, right? How much is enough? Right. And so Lex Luthor represents and kind of stands in for different shades of greed, whether it's personal greed, corporate greed, avarice, power, um, but also this sort of like inferiority complex. And so that is what he represents, because compared to Superman, who is physically strong, beloved by all, he is sort of the thing he sees like that should be me. It's this jealousy. Right. And I think when you remove that from the equation, it just the dynamic is gone. Right. Um, Grant Morrison in their all-star Superman story, which is really the definitive Superman story, um, talks about this. Like Lex Luthor gives himself Superman's powers and he can't handle it. He's overwhelmed by it because it shifts his worldview fundamentally. Um, You know, he has this very famous panel where he just like sees the world, how Superman sees it. He's like, it's like, oh my God, we're all in here with each other and, and we're all we've got. Like he can't handle this radical shift. Like, why is Superman empathetic? Because he sees all. And when you have the ability to kind of see and hear, like you can hear somebody screaming off in the distance or a mother talking to their child as they push a stroller down the street, or you, or you like can like listen to like the waves lapping across or, you know, on a distant planet, you're feeling like, you know, something's in trouble. When you see all these things and you have all this power, you have two choices. You can either show empathy and, and use that and say that I am part of this larger whole and can do what I can to be, to help it out. Or I can be like, I must control all of this. And Lex is like, I must control all this. But it's very clear he can't. No one can. And that's what makes Superman powerful. It's not his strength. It's not his speed. It's not his flight. It's the fact that he has that kind of core of empathy. And that is what is at the core of that character. Um, so I don't know if this answers any of the question that you were just no, asking. But I think that, you know, it becomes really shorthand. Like, what role does this character uh, play in these stories? And if I'm going to tell a story about um, greed and avarice, Lex Luthor is one of the first guys I'm going to go to because nobody else embodies it as well as he does. Lex is one of my favorite villains. I think that he's amazing because the thing is, like, if he could get over himself, if he could stop being so selfish and demanding the world see how brilliant he is, he actually could be an incredible heroic figure. Um, but he just hates this one guy so much that he can't get past it. Um, and there's something really that like the, you know, the thing that makes the best superheroes and best supervillains have like a flaw, like a feet of clay, right? Spider-Man cannot get his life together because being Spider-Man makes it impossible to do that. Um, you know, uh, Batman is a brilliant, grim Avenger, but he's undone by his own trauma and guilt, right? Um, Superman is all powerful, but his, he has just this innate core of humanity that can hold him back as much as it helps him. Right. And so like finding that, that emotional core is I think just key to telling stories regardless of genre, but superheroes, because they are so much like I represent this one thing, 
you see them now, you see that more is just like, if I want to play with these concepts, what characters do I slot in? I love that, Brian. And that is a read all-star Superman. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> got, so I have two final questions. Neither of them are about this though. I want to yeah. honestly, maybe, maybe next semester we have you back to talk about a few others. Cause there's more than one episode here. Um, uh, that that's all fascinating, fascinating stuff. Here, here's the first thing. Um, so I, as I was uh, like cyber stalking you today to try and find out more about your background, mm -hmm. uh, it, I mean, that makes it sound like I'm trying to break into your accounts. I'm not. Uh, I wanted to, Yet. I was, I was putting together. You won't my... find anything, buddy. There's nothing there for you to take. <laughs> Excellent. I write um, about comic books for a living. All right. Like, and that's, you've got all that. There's an upper limit money um so uh i discovered something that you have on your website and i want to just put this out there for the world to do because i liked it so much you have written a brian carr instruction manual mm. that is on the uwgb website i didn't know this existed maybe it's been there for a while and i it has been it, it existed but yeah. georgina if you are unfamiliar with this i am unfamiliar Brian has a, a, a list of ways of, of tips for people who work with him, like mm -hmm. things like, I prefer honesty and openness. Mm -hmm. If you don't like something I'm doing, tell me right away and directly face-to-face -face or via email. Yeah. I enjoy a nice lunch. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big believer in fairness and equality in all aspects of life. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's lots of other ones. I, I'm, I'm putting this out there because I thought it was clever. I actually, as I read through it, I was like, this is a guy who knows himself pretty well too, because I would have agreed with all of these things that as far as, as like what kind of person you are. So, well, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of stuck with myself most days. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a great line from Alan Moore's Watchmen where the um, anti-hero Rorschach's trapped in prison and like some criminals try to jump him and he beats them all up. And he's like, you don't understand. Um, I'm not trapped in here with you. You're all trapped in here with me. And that's kind of how my own mind is most of the time. It's like, well, I'm stuck in here with me. Um, no, actually, I got to give credit on that. That is a thing that we do in our department. Um, uh, oh, really? that our chair, Phil Clampett, started. We all write instruction manuals for how to work together. So that that is why that exists. I did not do that of my own volition. Um, I also haven't updated it in a while. I'm not sure if I, I would change anything too radically. Um, I, I also might be a little uh, more direct now in terms of like, um, you know, just... Uh, be nice to me or leave me alone. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it, you know, I, I think it's 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 a good exercise. It's helpful yeah. for kind of like figuring out who you are and, and what you represent and what you want to do. Well, I like that. I wish I'd come across it sooner. So kudos to uh to to Phil for uh for having you do that. I think it's a mm -hmm. clever idea. So here's my second question. Uh tell me about the books. You've written sure. two books or written and edited a book yeah. in the last uh year. I would like to hear about them, and so would our listeners. Sure. So um, I guess I'll go in chronological order. We'll start because it is Wakanda week. Uh, the Transmedia Construction of the Black Panther. This is uh, my first solo written book. I spent about two years putting this together. I actually started, I, I got the, uh, I presented at a conference in Baltimore. I met with a publisher there. They're like, you want to turn this into a book? And I'm like, yeah. So I spent about two years. The pandemic obviously kind of like extended this out a little bit longer than maybe I would have originally. Um, and, and so I was really interested in asking a fundamental question, you know, most of the academic research that had been done about Black Panther focused on the 2018 movie and the 2018 movie is awesome. 
Uh, you know, uh, it adds so much to that character. It is by far the definitive cultural version of that character. But as someone who came to this stuff through comics primarily, I'm looking at it from like, well, okay, but what about all the writers, all the artists, all the creators who gave them the material to develop into a film? Um, And, you know, I kind of had this notion, like, if you're going to talk about a character who's been around for, you know, he's in like like mid 60s. So we're talking about a character who's been around for over 60 years uh, coming up now um, or almost 60 years, I should say. Uh, Shouldn't you talk about all of that? Like, you know, it didn't he didn't just appear in in 2018. Um, And so, like, the challenge with the book is really just kind of saying, okay, so if we're going to step back, let's look at how this character develops, right? How he is crafted in the comics and kind of the evolution. I think one of the things that is important for folks listening to to know is that it's really easy to think about, oh, he was created from the beginning. They knew he was going to be a success. They knew he was going to be a star. They're like, this guy is our guy. No. Not at all. In fact, Marvel pretended he didn't exist for a long time. He was like a, also ran on the Avengers for a while. He was their token friend. He was standing in for like centrist racial politics and that kind of stuff. Um, and then like it wasn't until Don McGregor came along in the 70s and like, you know, revamped like basically like what if Wakanda had a culture? What if it actually was a place where people lived? And we spent all of our time there. Like he's very famously when he wrote um, when he did the jungle action Black Panther stuff. He said it in Africa, in Wakanda. There are no white people. None of the Avengers show up. And that was the thing he very purposely did. Marvel didn't like that. He fought with Marvel about that. Um, but it was important to his version of the character. Um, you know, and then you had later on, like, you know, after he left, they kind of brought him back to do another story where he goes to South Africa um, and in the height of apartheid and, and deals with that. Um, and then Christopher Priest uh, is the first, well, technically the second, um, Dwayne McDuffie actually writes uh, a, a Black Panther story in his Deathlock series. Um, but uh, Christopher Priest is the first guy who um, actually writes, uh, who is a, a black writer writing the Black Panther comic. And, you know, he comes in and he's like, guys, like, this is a character I can't really take seriously. He was always just the Avengers token buddy. Like, I didn't like him. And they're like, well, we think you can do something. It's like, he literally said, please don't give me Black Panther. Um, And so they're like, well, he like, we think you can do something cool with it. And so he decided I'm going to take this character. I'm going to, you know, revitalize him. I'm going to use him to, you know, make make satirical jokes. I'm going to make him like a legitimate threat. You know, I'm going to bring a lot of elements of Batman to the character. And he ends up writing a story that becomes definitive. You know, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, cites it as like, this is what got me into Black Panther as a character because I wasn't a fan growing up. Um, and of course, Ta-Nehisi Coates goes on and writes one of the definitive Black Panther stories. Um, you know, they, Christopher Priest run is what inspires Marvel to greenlight a Black Panther movie later. Um, and then other writers kind of build off of that. And so every writer, whether it's, you know, Priest or McGregor or Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, um, back in the beginning, or we've also got, you know, uh, Reginald Hudlin, who makes the character very kind of contemporary, brings in a lot of like hip hop culture and, and, and black pop culture in general and, and creates Shuri, Tanessi Coates, Nettie Okrafor, Evan Narciss, who I actually interviewed for the book. Um, his Rise of the Black Panther is about as good an introduction to the characters you can find. Um, they all add something. And I'm like, if we, so my thought is like, if you have this character who exists at the same time as all these sort of cultural forces, right? Um, the African diaspora, the Pan-African movement, the civil rights movement, all these things. And of course, recently with, you know, the protests over police brutality and that which is happening as I was writing this book, um, how do all these parts kind of create this larger narrative that is both in response to and directly challenging 
our sort of perceptions about this continent, about its people, about African-Americans, about black culture and all these kinds of things. Um, and what does he have to say? And so that is what the book is about. Um, I had, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't come in as a massive Black Panther fan. I liked the character. He is now my favorite guy in part because it's, you know, there's, are, there are professional and economic reasons um, that this, that is, but, you know, I just came to really appreciate how much there is to this character and just how incredible the art and the, and the writing and the right. ideas are with this character, especially, you know, Evan Narciss, when I was talking to him, talked about like how black writers and artists really elevate the character. And it's true. Um, they really truly make black Panther into the kind of character that can become this larger and of course, you have characters, like, folks like Chadwick Boseman and Brian Coogler who also add to it. So it's really this kind of larger kind of transmedia collaboration from all these different creative perspectives. That then, um, is awesome. Yeah, tell me quickly about- Yeah, Gender, Gender Defenders, Defenders also, yeah. sorry not to give it short shrift. Um, this is a book that uh, Dr. Mader Kasarfin, my mentor and I co-edited. We invited scholars from all across the country from different disciplines to talk about feminism and Marvel superheroines from all kinds. You have like Islamic feminism and Miss Marvel, uh, trauma and uh, theory in uh, Captain Marvel, standpoint theory of Agent Carter. Brilliant perspectives, incredible. This was a great pleasure to read this and put this together. Um, this is available for the Ohio State University Press. And uh, both these books, uh, if you go on my Twitter account, uh, you will probably be able to see, like you, I have like discount codes and all that. Nice. And I will, um, I will link to those in the show notes for this as well so people can find them that way. That is awesome. Brian, uh, your Twitter is at Learnonot. Is that correct? That is correct. Also, brianjcar.uwgb.org has links to all my stuff. Oh, nice. Excellent. I will include that as well. So thank you very much. Georgina, where can people find you? They can, you can find me on Insta or the Kicking It Old School on Facebook for maybe a little while longer uh, <laughs> at G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. Excellent. And I am at Anger Professor in all of the places. Make sure to check us out at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can ask questions. You can request topics for episodes, contribute to segments, whatever. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlease. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Brian Carr. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dunchess. Keep being amazing. Music